And welcome back for another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. I'm your host, Chris Graves. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with attorney Sean Hightower. Sean is a criminal defense attorney in Nacogdoches, Texas, and I really appreciate him taking the time to sit down and talk to me. This episode was really, I just wanted to sit down with an attorney and pepper him with the kind of questions you might ask an attorney if you didn't have to pay him three or $400 an hour for the privilege. Sean and I start off kind of getting into his background and why he chose the career he chose, and then we kind of dove into different issues he faces as a criminal defense attorney. I don't want to spoil too much, so let's get into the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. We are back for a, another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. We are here with uh, attorney Sean Hightower. Sean Hightower Esquire, is that right? Yeah, just Sean Hightower. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sean uh, and I went to school together in at SFA, Stephen F. Austin State University. I'm here in Nacogdoches recording a couple episodes with some people I find interesting. Uh Sean and I were both political science students, and Sean went on to... Uh, law school became a criminal defense attorney. Yep, which I found interesting. Uh, Sean, I guess f- first up, if you could just kind of tell everybody a little bit about why you got into law, yeah, how you got here, what law firm you work for, and just kind of give us a brief little history of where you got where you're at. Sure. Um, in high school, I I did a col- or high school debate, and um, I ended up winning the state championship my senior year, so I was a state champion. That led me to get a scholarship at SFA for the debate team at SFA. I kind of knew from a very young age I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why, uh, but I, my grandmother gave me a, you know, in kindergarten you had to write that, what do you want to be when you grow up, things. In kindergarten I wrote I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I don't know why. I have some lawyers in my distant family, but none of my immediate family that are lawyers. Uh, but I always wanted to be one. I uh, came to SFA, uh, majored in poli-sci, did the debate team, did moot court. And I just kind of always knew I wanted to do law. Kind of the turning point really into what I wanted to do and kind of how I ended up here today, though, when I was a uh, sophomore at SFA, I was working for a bankruptcy law firm here in town that, uh, funny enough, went bankrupt. (laughs) So they, uh, I was kind of just the gopher for them, just go get this and file this, do that, making trips to like the federal courthouse to file stuff because back then they didn't have e-filing like we do now. Um, but anyway, they went bankrupt, so I had to find another job, and I knew I wanted to work in the law field. So I literally just opened the phone book, called every lawyer in the phone book, and got to the J's, to Tim James. Just called him, uh, came in. Kind of a funny story. I came in and interviewed, and he, you know, he told me that day that he would let me know within a week if I got the job. So that night I went out to Flashbacks, uh, the, the local bar, and... Um, uh, drank a lot with my friends as as we did at SFA. And then the next morning at like 8 o'clock in the morning, he called and said, all right, come on to work. So my first day at work, I came in hungover. Uh, and it kind of just started from there. I started working for Tim, uh, just doing basically gopher work. Uh, that's all I was doing at that point. And then I kind of graduated in the paralegal role, gradu- graduated in doing more legal research. And then it kind of came with an offer at that point, if I would go to law school, that Tim would help pay for it. And um, with the understanding that I would come back and work for him to kind of work off that debt. And um, it's kind of where 
uh, what happened. I came back and it was the law office of Tim James and I was an associate. Did that for about four years and then um, now I'm a partner. So it's James and Hightower. We've got an office here in Nacogdoches. We practice primarily in East Texas, but we, we recently opened an office in Houston and Beaumont. Um, I do uh, state and federal criminal defense. So when I'm in Houston or if I'm in Beaumont, that's mainly for federal cases. I, I don't do a lot of state cases. I do have a murder case in Beaumont right now, but short of that, I've got federal cases. Now, are those federal cases, do they run the gamut, or are they more capital offenses, drug cases, yeah. or is it just some of everything? It's kind of some of everything. We do a lot of drug cases. Um, most federal cases in general are either going to be drugs or, or child pornography. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that, that's the majority in this area. And do you defend those? Oh, yeah. For, well, for a certain fee, we defend those. Yeah. Um, we, and that's another great thing about our office. Um, because of my law partner, where he's at in his life, we're in the situation we don't do court-appointed work and we don't do payments. So in order to hire my office, you have to pay us cash up front. Uh, occasionally, if it's a large fee, we may split it up, but primarily it's here's the fee and you got to pay it to the penny that day before we get started. Do you... I guess I, I want to get back. Uh, we'll circle back in on, on yeah. fees and how you charge and, and the business side of stuff here in a little bit. Sure. Uh, what I wanted to know is, so you're a criminal defense attorney. Yeah. Is that strictly because that's kind of what you fell into with uh, Tim James? Or did you have an idea before that? that criminal defense is something that appealed to you? How did you get into this specific niche of law? Yeah, so criminal defense um, is, I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do going into it. Uh, though, you know, that was during the Bush years uh, when I first started getting around law. And I always, you know, I really didn't like uh, the Bush administration, and I always felt that there was a certain amount of corruption, not only in the federal government, but especially in East Texas. There's a lot of local corruption and uh, that really rubbed me the wrong way. So I kind of have a passion of exposing corruption in the, in the system. I've had many uh, police officers that on cases made legitimate arrests, but I was able to expose a large amount of corruption. You know, they arrested somebody for like a misdemeanor crime. But, uh, for example, I have one uh, chief deputy that just lied about his entire career committed all kinds of perjury. So they indicted that guy for four counts of felony when, perjury. When you say lie about his career, like what kind of lies are we talking? Oh, I mean, everything. He lied about his degree. He said he had a degree from Stephen F. Austin that he didn't. He said he was in the military, and he wasn't. He said he was a, um, a, a Green Beret or some ridiculous you know, military career that he had had. He, he had, in fact, never gone. He had said that he had taught and trained at certain um, organizations, like for the FBI, and there's the Deep East Texas Regional Task Force, all these task forces he said he had trained at. But I was able to get, you know, I knew when he graduated high school. And I were in Texas, they have this thing called TCOL, the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement. So that's the licensing agency to be a police officer. Well, I took that, um, his high school graduation date, and the date that he was commissioned as a peace officer, and then his age. And then you realize that just by the simple math, he was full of shit. He could no way he could have done all that at that age and education level. I mean, he was saying he had done all this complicated white collar, you know, federal drug stuff that, I mean, this guy has a high school diploma from like Woden High School. <laughs> He's not going to be, the feds aren't going to let you do that. I mean, I, I have federal agents that have masters and PhDs that haven't done that kind of work yet because they're just not qualified yet. So that claim was just kind of ridiculous to me. 
What was even more ridiculous is that guy worked here for 20 years, um, and nobody ever called him on his bullshit. Well, I, was it an open secret? Did people know about it, and somebody kind of whispered it in your <laughs> ear? Or like, what made you go down this rabbit hole to begin yeah. with? So actually, it was a great story. My in, um, so at my office, I employ private investigators. Most of my private investigators are former police officers. They're usually retired. Um, the one in this case, she um, had had a child, and she wanted didn't want the lifestyle of being a cop anymore because the schedules are not very uh, flexible. Right. So she wanted that eight to five kind of deal. So she was working here. She had taught several classes herself to other police officers. So she was teaching like um, child abduction, sexual assaults, those kind of things. That was kind of her specialty. And so she had taught those classes and these and that officer and actually several more that ended up getting indicted had all said that they were in that class and had claimed credit for it on their TCOL records. Well, when I got those records, she realized, wait a minute, I taught that class and that bastard wasn't in there. I, I know I would remember if he was there. So that's what kind of got the ball rolling is we knew for sure that one particular class he hadn't taken and he had claimed credit for it, which is forgery of a government document. He had tampered with it. It's a felony. And so that's kind of what got the ball rolling. And then just from there, you know, he, the guy had never been questioned. Nobody had ever actually gotten those records because when anybody says I got a degree from SFA and whatever, you just take it blindly. You don't call the yeah, If you live in Nacogdoches yeah. and you say you got a degree there, it's. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I actually thought, well, that's bullshit because this guy, he had said he had a degree like in psychology, but he was a sociopath. So <laughs> I thought, well, surely we weren't handing out degrees to people with like this kind of mentality. He just, he didn't appear to be the college educated type. So I knew some of the psychology professors called them. Hey, do you remember this guy as a student? No. Well, I mean, our psychology department's only like six people. If they don't recognize you, something's wrong. I mean, it's a pretty small department. And this guy was the chief deputy. I mean, he's second in command of every police officer in this town. So when they didn't recognize him, I called the registrar. And the registrar in any university can confirm dates of graduation and degree awarded. And she confirmed that none of those things that he had claimed were true. So we're going to get into some other cases and, and mm. situations you uncovered, corruption you found. Yeah. But what I what interests me and what I want to know is you have a knack for kind of uncovering corruption, mm -hmm. throwing shade at the law enforcement in town, questioning their motives, um, their competency, generally second-guessing the police. Yeah. Does that not make you pretty unpopular with the law enforcement in town? Well, it's actually... It's, what are the consequences yeah, of it? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I don't think so, because there are good cops. My brother's a police officer. In Nacogdoches? Uh, no, my brother's a police officer in Fort Worth. Okay. But, um, you know, good cops appreciate good cop work. They don't want to cut corners. You know, I, I understand when a, when a person becomes a police officer, they're not ordained perfect. I mean, they're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So I don't, mind, <coughs> excuse me, I don't mind mistakes. I do mind constant, intentional, you know, s just lying and cheating and stealing just to win. This is not a winner-take-all system. I mean, in criminal justice, these are people's lives. They're going to prison because you lied or because you intentionally broke the law to put them there. So it's kind of a weird situation. I've never had any police officer despise or hate me. I've had many tell me that they knew it was coming. Uh, they, you know, they respected that. They don't like that that officer got caught. They don't like that he did that. And I've had, you know, right now I'm representing 13 troopers, DPS troopers, because 
they knew that I, I do kind of have a knack for exposing that corruption, but also about doing something about it. For a long time in this area, there was all these open secrets where we knew that these people, you know, were violating the law and we were just letting them get away with it. But I, I don't like that. You know, I, I know who to call and I will call them. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that I have Lindsay here taking pictures for this, this episode. And on the drive into Nacogdoches, I was telling her about the situation in Tenaha. Yeah. Uh, one, were you, were you involved with Tenaha or is that a little bit before your time? So I was working at this office at that time mm-hmm. as a paralegal. And um, if you read the petition in that case... Can you... T- I, want, I yeah. want you to... Sorry to cut you off. I want you to tell the listeners, uh, kind of give them the backstory on Tenaha as well, as, as yeah. well as kind of your ro- yeah, role well, in it. Sure. So Tenaha is a town in between Nacogdoches and Shelby County. It's a little hole, about 1,500 people. Um, they have a city marshal. He's, it's like basically their own lone ranger in that town. And his name is Barry Washington. Barry was pulling people over... Interesting, he was black, but he would pull over people of color. And basically what he would do is he'd pull them over and they would have, and it was ridiculous, they would have $100, some of them would have thousands of dollars. Some but of it was them, also on the way to Shreveport, the riverboat, yeah. so you'd catch people with a good amount of cash. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the thoroughfare in East Texas to get to Shreveport. Yeah. Um, so what he would do is he would pull these people over, he and the district attorney, he'd pull them over, they'd have $1,000 and they'd have their kids in the car. And he would tell them, okay, you've got two options. You can fight this, and I'm going to charge you with felony money laundering, and I'm going to uh, give your kids to CPS, or you can just give up and give us the cash today. Of course, people, you know, if you threaten to take away their kids or threaten them with a felony, of course they're going to give you your cash. And so this became a kind of a pattern. Um, I have a lot of videos where uh, Barry actually called the district attorney, uh, who is now a defense attorney in that county, but would call her and say, all right, Linda Kay, I have gotten, you know, a gold chain necklace and $50. And she would come out to the scene and look at it. And, you know, they would basically dance around the money on the hood of a car and just, you know, high five each other about ripping these people off. They would take cars, they would take cash, they would just take everything in your car um, in exchange for uh, dismissing some made up criminal case. Well, if if you think a child is in danger, you don't trade that for a, a gold necklace or hundred dollars so obviously it was all just complete bullshit <clears throat> i mean it's just a way for them to steal <coughs> excuse me so um you know that that happened enough where kind of the first set of plaintiffs were these guys from michigan they were uh, muslim and um you know so they look strange there's these four muslim guys in a car going through Tenaha, texas with michigan plates long beards so of course i got pulled over they got pulled over, and they had tens of thousands of dollars in the car because they were going to Houston to go to an auto auction. They were going to go buy cars at this auto auction. And uh, Barry took, uh, I think it was over 50000 It was either thirty dollars or $50,000 in cash from those guys and told them, either you give me the money and I will let you go, or you give me the money and you don't sign this piece of paper, and then we're going to file felony charges on you. For well, money laundering? For money laundering, yeah. To prove money laundering, you have to prove a nexus to some criminal activity, which, of course, Barry Washington in Tenahaw, Texas, would never know because uh, he has no access to that kind of stuff. It's just some guy driving through from Michigan or wherever. So um, anyway, they, they got arrested. So on their way, literally just happenstance, on their way, uh, you know, they get out of jail, they get in their car, and they're going down to Houston. They drive by our office. I was a paralegal at the time. 
and they stop in and they tell my law partner about it what happened and then he immediately knew okay this it's been it's kind of been the rumor but we never had anybody come in so that those guys came in and literally one phone call tim called the district attorney and said hey you can't keep the money give it back oh i'm sorry mr james and then she personally drove it down here and gave us all the cash back well that up you know that we knew that that was wrong so we then sent them to some civil rights attorneys here in town, Tim Garrigan. Tim Garrigan. Yeah, it was Tim Garrigan, Bill Guillory. And uh, Tim Garrigan uh, started looking and had pulled a bunch of records at that point and then figured out that this had happened hundreds of times. Now, what did he do? Did he go through the, uh, like the, Im- not the impound, but the the Tenaha yeah. civil forfeiture log that they kept? Yeah, so what he had done is he actually went through the video. So anytime they pull somebody over, Anytime a police officer in Texas turns their head, their red and blue lights on, you back up 30 seconds from the time. It'll record 30 seconds prior to the lights coming on and then automatically stay recording while the lights are on. Um, so he went through and just got all the tapes. I mean, just literally every tape from that town for the last year. And they were able to go through and, you know, you can see how many, the, the government has to report how many times they stop somebody and the race of those people. So you can see they were stopping a thousand people in a town of 1500 that doesn't even have a jail. And then they were only making two arrests. Well, why are you pulling over 1500 and only arresting two or three? So that's what really, I mean, it was just blatantly obvious what was going on. So, you know, we kind of started from the criminal side and a fair number of those people, we were able to just literally call the district attorney and say, give us some money back. And they would, because they didn't want to go through the litigation of it. And after that happened for about a year, Tim Garrigan filed a federal lawsuit, which pretty much changed policing in Texas. Now there's a whole bunch of um, rules required for civil forfeiture. The the sta- you know the burden to take the cash is a little bit more, and there's a lot of reporting that has to go on that didn't happen prior to that Tenahaw case. So Tim Garrigan um, here in town, he was on Anderson Cooper. He was in the New Yorker. I mean, it, I, re- I remember seeing the story in the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah, in the New York Times. I mean, it just it kind of made national news, and um, this little bumfuck town in yeah, nowhere, Texas. Yeah, nowhere, Texas. And interesting enough, um, in in the middle of all that, a lot of corruption. Like I said, the mayor of that town, who's illiterate, um, they would serve him with papers, and he would mail them back because he couldn't read them. You should, how do you become a? How do you get elected mayor when you you can't read? Well, that's. Ted Hall, Texas. Fair enough. So um, they're investigating. Basically, the FBI comes into town. This was during Obama's term. Um, so he actually had like a civil rights division of the FBI that looked into things. We don't have that anymore. Uh, so they actually do we not have it anymore. Or they just don't do anything. They anymore? don't do anything. Okay. Um, so basically, they don't even really call themselves like civil rights investigators. There is a Department of Civil Rights, uh, but I mean they're defunct basically. Um, thanks, Trump. Yeah. So. You know, they come to town and they're investigating. And in the middle of all that, there's a murder that happens of one of the witnesses and all this. Uh, The mayor had reported a burglary at the police department where a bunch of drugs were taken. Well, then they figured out that somebody had actually broken the glass, uh, the window where the drugs were, had broken it from the inside out. Obviously, somebody who was allowed to be inside the police station had stolen the drugs and made it look like a burglary. So, you know, they thought it was the mayor and, and Barry and everybody was involved in this. And so they, you know, they ended up arresting one guy. They indicted or they tried to indict the mayor, but never did. Uh, they ran Barry off. The The district attorney got in a lot of trouble. But 
they kind of all petered out in the end. Um, none of them got arrested. They all got fired. They all um, have that reputation now. Uh, but Barry Washington has a twin brother, interesting enough, and it's Barry and Larry. They both um, are now in Shreep, or in, uh, in uh, Sulphur Springs, Texas, both police officers up there. They both ran for sheriff against each other, and they both lost to some newcomer because of all that. But uh, they're still, you know, in Texas. The, there's a federal order that says that they stole, lied, cheated, uh, but that did not suspend their their police officer That's crazy. Uh, license. So they're still out there copping. Yeah. So you're, you're a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, you... <sighs> People pay you, obviously, because you're good at your job. Um, do you have... I guess the, the morality of your job is interesting mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Because I know... Let's say I'm in town and I know Hightower... James and Hightower, they do good work. Mm-hmm. If I get busted with something, if I come in and I've got the money up front, they're going to give me a good defense. Yeah. My first question is... When you sit down, do you ever ask, did you do it? It depends, kind of a case by case. Um, you know, a lot of times it doesn't matter to me if they did it or didn't do it. Most, Actually, I'll say every time, it doesn't really matter to me if they did it. What matters to me is the defense, how we're going to get around it. I mean, there are cases that when they come in that you try to get out, you know, thrown out or dismissed legally because of some legal issue, because they lied, cheated, stole, they coerced a confession, they illegally pulled you over. So that kind of stuff I need to know. But if they just if it's just 100% clear that they the officer had a right to pull you over, uh, they investigated and they had a, a good search warrant, the next part that we look at is mitigation. So in those cases, I don't care if they did it. I'm just trying to explain their conduct. Why did they do it? And then any good act that they've done since then that would kind of mitigate their conduct. So it's it's not so much they came in and I can't defend them or, you know, I'm just lying my ass off. It, you know, most of the time, if they did it, everybody knows they did it. I mean, if the officers did a good job, there's no doubt they did it. It's just, how do we explain that? How do we mitigate that? What is, do you, do you come across people? Like I said, you, you say, mm-hmm. you said you don't really care if they're guilty. Somebody come in, you know, mm-hmm. is, is guilty. And it's, it's one thing to come in and ask you to, def- let's say I come in, and I ask you to defend me for some pot, Mm-hmm. that I got pulled over with. That's one thing. But if I come in and I ask you, hey, Hightower, I'm suspected of killing my girlfriend or something heinous. Yeah. You've seen the case. It's very clear. Chris mm-hmm. is very guilty. Yeah. And it's not a technicality. Does the way you defend change it? Like, do you do you still try your hardest to let me walk because I've paid you your fee and that's what I've paid you to do? Yes. <laughs> Does that bother you at all? Not at all. No. You know, have you got, let me ask you, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Have you gotten somebody, and I don't need specific, have you gotten somebody off you knew did it? Oh, yeah. And I, you got them off on a technical, yes. Does so, that bother you at all? Not one bit. Okay. Um, and actually, so my very first case out of law school, um, it involved the officer I talked about that got caught lying and cheating about his name or his, his credentials. Right. I mean, everything in the world. That lady, um, on she was on probation for murder. She had killed somebody years before. She had then, years later, while on probation um, for murder, she shot at her then-boyfriend. That case got dismissed because she had confessed without a Miranda warning, so they screwed that one up. I got that case completely dismissed, and she got out. And then, a couple years later, uh, she gets picked up again. For this time, it was drugs. 
And the officer, the whole issue in that case, I mean, she confessed to doing it. They found the drugs in her house. The whole issue was, did she give consent for the officer to come into her house? She said that she told him, no, you can't come in. The officer said, yes, she did. That's pretty subjective. I mean, and it goes to the jury. The jury can either believe the police officer or he can believe the lady who's on probation for murder. So it wasn't looking very good. But there was a very honest police officer who had, of course, there's no video of this transaction. Nobody recorded anything. Does, uh, sorry to cut you off. Does Nacogdoches mm-hmm. have body cams now? Yeah, yes. Now they do. And at that time they did, too. Oh, okay. They just conveniently did not have them on that this transaction. Okay. Except one officer did. And that was never turned over until months later. The officer does turn it over, and then he just in good faith said that I can't just stand by with this guy lies. Of course, you know, he asked if he could come in, and then we're not really sure what she said. So they basically just break down the door, come in and search her house and find some crack. And um, we got that case thrown out on, you may call it a technicality, but on the Constitution. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, they didn't read Miranda correctly. They had fucked that up. There's five parts of Miranda, and they uh, the, the last part is that you have the right to terminate this interview at any time. And they didn't say that part. They they said the part about uh, you have the right to an attorney, the right to remain silent, anything you say can be used against you in court of law. Uh, you know, all of those things they had said correctly, but they didn't say, uh, and you have a right to terminate this interview at any time. So the judge appropriately dismissed that, or he suppressed that confession. Without the confession, they would have no drugs. Without no drugs, they could not prosecute the case. Then the government appealed that case. They, they wanted to try to get it in a different way. And then that's when we investigated that officer for all of his uh, training and experience, because he was saying, based on my training and experience, that's how I knew she was dealing drugs, and that's how the government was trying to say, regardless of her confession of the drugs, we can still get it in by the officer's training and experience. And so you decided to go at him with what training and experience? Yeah. It's if, all fake. Yeah, it's all fake. So that's uh, that case gets appealed, and then as soon as we find that out, uh, they dismiss the appeal. My client's case is still dismissed, and that officer then gets indicted on four counts of aggravated perjury, which are third-degree felonies, anywhere from two to ten years in prison. Each? Each, um, in Texas, it's each. They could have stacked them or theoretically you could get 40 years, but most often you would just run them together. Um, of course, because he's a cop, they kind of petered out at the end and they let him do uh, probation, like a deferred uh, pretrial, where he admitted guilt. He said he was guilty, uh, but they just slapped his hand. And um, now I think he is a traveling taxidermist, which is comforting. <laughs> he was a taxidermist here in town, but basically ripped everybody off on that as well because if you're a piece of shit in your cop work, you're probably a piece of shit in your regular work. Um, so now he's a traveling taxidermist, the last I heard. So Awesome. But, you know, to answer your question shortly, no, that didn't bother me at all. I mean, that my job is not, you know, my job is to defend my client and to uphold the Constitution. And the government's job is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed some crime. If the government can't do that, I mean, we fought wars over this. Yeah. You know, it makes us no better than, you know, some third world, you know, third world dictator to just lay down and say, oh, okay, um, you got me close enough for government work. It doesn't work that way. So I, I don't have a lot of morals when it comes to my clients. You know, I will represent them to the fullest extent that I, that I can legally. Um, and then, you know, fuck Well, them. it sounds like you do have morals, but your morals are beholden to your client. Yeah, and to the Constitution. Right. I mean, that to me, that's the most important thing is checking the system, making, you know, if they got my client, they got him. I mean, there's no doubt, you know, there's many people that are just guilty. 
it's, you know, if they are guilty, is the punishment just? That's a big thing for me. Just because they had drugs, we're not gonna, we shouldn't throw them in prison. That helps nobody. Mm-hmm. And actually, it probably hurts society more to put them in prison than to just give them probation, give them rehab, something like that. Uh, but if they're gonna, if they're willing to fuck over the client, you know, and fuck over the Constitution, you know, how is that any different than North Korea? You know, I mean, just throw them in a labor camp because we don't like them. I mean, that to me, that's really the the most important thing at the end of the day is you want to ensure that the system works every time correctly for every person. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then pack it up. You mentioned you're in kind of the, you're in a fine privileged state where you can basically Mm. money at the door, pay up or leave. Yeah. One of the issues I have with our criminal justice system is, yeah, you've got to, like you said, if I want the constitution to apply to me fairly, I need to have the money to make it apply to me fairly. Yeah. Um, a, public defender is not going to have the resources that's true to properly defend me what, what are your thoughts on that and how do how does how do we make the system better yeah and that you know as a bleeding heart liberal that is a thing that i do struggle with is um you know my clients definitely have to pay for the privilege of hiring us and um, it is a privilege because i don't do court-appointed work um, and i can tell you in this town you know, no other attorney has the resources that we do. We have private investigators that work for us and only us. So literally at a drop of a hat, I've got two former police officers out there investigating a crime uh, that nobody else has the advantage of. The way to fix that is more money um, to for indigent defense, which in Texas is never going to happen. Indigent defense is, is funded at the local county level. You know, Nacogdoches, we're concerned right now about building a new jail. We're not concerned about putting more money in the... Um, You're not li- going to sell a bunch of East Texans on raising taxes to, to pay for poor criminals. Yes, exactly. And yeah. it's not popular. Um, and it, it doesn't make any sense to me because right now the commissioners are trying to sell to the community. Our jail is so old that we need a new one. It's going to cost us like $20 million to build a new jail. Well, you could put in $2 million in the indigent defense fund and you would have less people in jail because you'd actually have people trying. Getting to def- off who should be yeah. let off. And and people that get a defense. And that nobody gets that because it's not popular for a commissioner to get reelected. You know, commissioners in every county in Texas get paid. You know, in this county, a commissioner makes $50,000. None of them, to my knowledge, even have a college degree. They're all high school diploma educated people. For a $50,000 a year government job with insurance, that's a hell of a job. So you're going to cling to that thing as long as you can. And you're not going to want to, you know, upset the voting public by raising funds for criminals, you know, because then I'll lose my, my cush government job. Do, let, let me ask you this. Let, let's say in a perfect world, we socialize criminal defense work. Yeah. Are you out of a job or do you still find, do you still yeah. do okay? I think, I think we do okay. Um, you just have to find that niche. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> Harris County has a very, uh, probably one of the best public defenders office in the world. Um, a friend of mine, Janie Maselli is one of their appellate attorneys there and kind of the director. You know, in Harris County, they pretty much match dollar for dollar what the DA's office makes and what the public defender's office makes, which is unusual. Most places, the DA's office would have millions of dollars and the public defenders would have hundreds of thousands and they're both, you know, defending about the same number or they're representing about the same number of people. Uh, but there to be a public defender, you have to have had an extensive trial experience and, um, 
they've got full-time investigators on staff. If we socialize that, you know, you'd have to set yourself apart on on the field. You know, I would have to specialize in more kind of niche markets, complicated stuff that, you know, a public defender would just be able to kind of generally represent every field. And then you would find more specialties if, if you stayed in the private sector. One of the things that I actually have supported in East Texas and with our local um, state rep, that'll never happen, but I've talked to him extensively about it. This county could never afford a public defender's office. Angelina County, Shelby County, San Augustine, Sabine, I mean, little, every, all the little counties that touch this county could never afford one. But you could make a regional public defender's office where you would fund, you know, every county would put up some amount of money. And you could get a couple million dollars a year, two, three million dollar a year, invest, you know, two or three million dollar a year um, uh, public defender's office. You put in two or three investigators, and then they would actually be able to, to represent clients in every county. And, you you know, for time being, you only let them do serious felonies where they would need the investigators and, and those kind of attorneys. So who does public defense, because as I understand it, constitutionally, if I'm... Mm-hmm. On trial for a f- like felony or misdemeanor in Texas is it misdemeanor? Yeah, I have to have a lawyer appointed to me. Is that right? You don't have to. Um, you're entitled to one. It, it, right. Yeah. So if you want one, you can get one. Right, right, right. right. But in Nacogdoches, you're saying that there's not a public defender's office. So who is appointed to me at that point? Yeah. So in Nacogdoches, and it's similar in most counties in Texas, they have basically the appointment wheel, which means that. I volunteer to the judge. I will accept your appointment of any criminal defendant, and it's normally a negotiated pay. In Nacogdoches, it's like 100 to $200 a plea. Wow. So it, you tell the judge that I will represent whoever you appoint me to um, for $100, and if I go to trial, you're only going to pay me $1,000. Um, you know, how much work are you going to do for $100? Because you may go to court, you know, a year. You may have to go four or five times before you have a resolution. Um, so a hundred dollars, you're not really motivated to do a lot, but also the stress of, I got to pay my light bill. I got to pay my student loans. I got to pay my gas. Um, so I need hundreds of clients. I need you to, you know, judge, I want you to appoint me a hundred clients at a hundred dollars a pop so I can make money this month because you don't make money until the case is over. So if I get appointed in May, that case might not be over until January, February of the next year. So you're really, you know, out on the hook on those kind of cases. Yeah. And it's really unfair, you know, and and I'm, you know, I'm probably blessed uh, to say the least because I've never, I never had to kind of hustle that, that life. I kind of just started out in the middle or maybe at the top. Um, you know, I charged $3,500 on a DWI and that's kind of the lowest level crime that we do here. So you come in, you pay me 3500 and I, you know, I do an extensive amount of work and research and, I'm, you know, I focus most of my efforts on that one person. <clears throat> and I text them, you know, I text those clients weekly and keep up with them, you know, just a lot of handholding. And I get $3,500. What's your acquittal rate? If I pay, if I, I know it, I, it depends on <clears throat> the case. The case. Yeah. And did I just yeah. hand myself over to a cop and say I did it? But on average, what's your acquittal rate? I, I know you guys settle a lot of those, but yeah. if I pay you $3,500, what's my ballpark odds of walking away without a DWI? Yeah, I would say we're probably. Forty percent right now on on either a dismissal or a reduction from a DWI, and that's probably twenty percent higher than than the average in this county. Yeah. Uh, because you think about it, I have one client, and you know I'll go and get like I'll actually get the lab reports and I'll go through them and send them to a scientist and and take them to SFA and you know when you're paying that kind of money, 
you're paying not just for me and my investigators, you're paying for the scientific research and all the supervision of that. So I can explain that to the prosecutor. Here's why you need to reduce it or dismiss it. Whereas like a court-appointed attorney, he may have 70 DWIs and he's only getting $700 for all seven of those. He's not going to do that much work on it because he can't. You know, he's going to do his best to plea it out, yeah. plea it down and move and get, on. And move on because he's, he's got to. You know, you can't hold on to those cases forever because then they're just taking up space. You're not getting paid. What kind, you, you have the luxury of, I assume, picking your cases a little bit more. I assume yeah. you're not taking everybody who can walk in and pay you. Yeah. What kind of cases, what kind of cases do you just turn down at the door? Mm-hmm. Or what other circumstances lead to you going, you know what, I don't need the money for this? Yeah. There's not a particular case. I'll take anything. Um, sexual assault, I don't care what you did. Murder, you know, child porn, whatever. I'll take any case. It's not so much the case that I'm concerned about. It's the client. When you come in to meet with me for the first time, I'm going to talk to you for about an hour. Not about just your case. You know, probably half it's about your case, but the other half is just getting to know you. If I cannot stand you or if I can tell you're just going to be a terrible client where you're going to either demand way too much of me uh, or your expectations are way too high, then I'm not going to take your case. What do you mean by expectations being too high? There's There's this misnomer that if you hire a criminal defense attorney and you actually pay him money, then your case gets dismissed. Well, I mean, if you're on video murdering somebody, your case is not going to get dismissed. Uh, what you're paying for is not to go to prison the rest of your life or for the government not to kill you. And to prepare a mitigating case is going to take a lot of effort and time on my part. But if I can never make you happy, um, and I can tell I'm never going to make you happy, or your your personality is just so conflicting of mine that I can tell it's just going to ruin my life just to deal with you, then um, I'm not going to take your case. Because one of the things we do here is we talk to our clients pretty frequently. I text them. I call them. Um, so, I mean, it's basically like we're getting married. I mean, we're in a relationship. Yeah. I've got to be able to stand this person. If I can't stand that person, if if I can tell it's just going to eat my soul to talk to you on a daily basis, um, and I'm never going to make you happy no matter what I do, even if I got your case dismissed, you were still upset because it took so long to get your case dismissed. I don't want that case. Do you... <clears throat> You said you'll take any kind of case. Yeah. Um, and you're, uh, I, I guess the economics of it interests me. You are cash up front. Is it mm-hmm. a flat rate per case? Is a murder X amount? A sexual assault is this? A DWI is this? Or do you sit down, you hear the case, and you go, you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing, th- this murder case is going to take X amount of work. This murder case is going to take three times as much and your your rate varies like how do you oh, yeah. determine how that what you charge yeah we kind of have you know we kind of know with like the base case you know what we would charge somebody. you know a range already i know a range but then we also we do talk to you and and a lot of times it could require more work but i know you may not have the money but I either i want the case uh, for whatever reason or you know I, it does fluctuate i may charge for a murder case less for a murder case than I do for like a sexual assault because a sexual assault may take more work. Uh, most sexual assaults is a he said, she said. You know, there's no video of the sexual assault occurring. So those are very difficult because you have a child, you know, 12-year-old saying that their stepfather raped him and the stepfather said, no, I've never done it, you know, never even thought about that. I mean, that's that takes a lot of work and effort to, to figure out what you're going to do in that case. Whereas a murder case, 
you killed somebody, you killed your ex-husband because he beat the shit out of you. Well, he needed killing, so that's a pretty easy case to defend. Um, so definitely, it's case by case. We kind of know, you know, misdemeanors, you, ever, you know, kind of, DWIs are all the same. There's not any really complicated versus another non Do you ever charge or, or, or quote a rate? Mm-hmm. Let's say I come in mm-hmm. uh, attempted murder. Yeah. I come to <laughs> I come to Sean. I want you to represent me. You quote me, and I'm just going to make a number up. But mm-hmm. you charge, you know, Chris, that'll be $10,000. Mm-hmm. You get looking at my case. Do you? Does it ever happen where you fall into kind of a a, a trap where you thought it would be, we'll call it a hundred hours? Yeah. You start digging, and suddenly you realize, well, I probably should have charged them twenty thousand because I'm doing way more work. Yeah. Does that happen? And do you come back and hit me up again for more money, or is it just I got to take the L on that one financially? Got to take the L. Um, yeah, that happens a lot actually. Um, or you get into the case and they, you come in and meet with them. And they're great people, and then they leave, and they turn into the worst human in the world, and they're terrible, and they call you. And, you know, I've had a marijuana case that required more work than a murder case that I've had. And you just take the L on those. Um, It happens a lot. I have a contract, so once we make a deal, I stick to that contract. One, because that's what I have to do. That's what the contract says. But also— Are you allowed to just cancel? Are you allowed to hand them their money back and go, you find someone, another lawyer? Does that happen? No, I don't ever give money back. (laughs) <laughs> no, I can. And another problem, I mean, you know, just the practicality of it is, you know, you know, this month I have a mortgage and a house and I'm going to Japan to travel and, you know, and I want to go business class. I don't want to go coach. So I may take a case for a lot less than what I normally would charge because I need the money. Uh, so, you know, the economics of surviving also play in, into it as well. The summer, you know, and this is a college town, college kids aren't here. So I may take more cases in the summer at a cheaper rate than I would when the college kids are here because, you know, at the end of the day, I've got six people i got to feed. Do, does, is your rate, is it strictly based on anticipated work? Or do you, like you said, college kids, mm-hmm. college is in season. You know you're going to get a lot more DUIs. Mm-hmm. Those DUIs are going to have mommy and daddy foot in the bill. Yeah. Is the rate you're going to charge for a DUI in the summer going to be different than the rate you would charge, maybe even that same student in the fall or the same situation. Does that rate change based on what you think the client can pay? Yeah, sometimes, you know, DWIs, misdemeanors pretty much always stay the same. Those don't fluctuate. I'm going to check because most of those wash out in the end. You know, I may do a lot of work on this particular case, but then the other ones were less work. So those, it's mainly the felonies where you're going to get into kind of fluctuating. Okay. Um, and, you know, it really just comes down to, you know, you know, like I have a case right now that I've really undercut, but it's kind of a a good case as far as it's going to have a lot of media attention, and I just I just want it. And so, you know, I told people, I want that case, so I'll take it, whatever. If, it, if they walk in the door, we'll figure out how I'm going to get the case. So there are some cases like that, not often, of course. Um, and then there's some cases that, you know, I'll see, and I just know that, you know, in this kind of environment, I don't even want a piece of. So there are some that'll walk in that they call or something and I'll say, you know what, there's no amount of money and I couldn't represent you. Uh, being a small town, I have friends here, of course, where, you know, the other side may not be a friend or I may know about the case in a different way or, um, you know, the the defendant may have really hurt one of my actual friends. So those are hard cases. Uh, so I try to stay away from those if I can. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to evaluate your friendships. Um, Do you... How would your law career, criminal law career, look if you were living in a Houston or a Dallas versus a Nacogdoches? How would that be different for you? Yeah, I tell all my friends from law school, you know, Houston and Dallas, 
there is a lot of competition. I mean, there are thousands of lawyers, and they're all hustling on traffic tickets. I mean, you you get arrested in Houston, you're going to get a hundred letters from every attorney in town telling you that they'll take your case for five hundred dollars or whatever. So there's a lot of hustle that you have to do in the bigger cities because you're competing against everybody. Um, I don't have that. You know, I don't have to do it. There's the business kind of just comes to you. Business comes to me. You know, I have a billboard. We have a website, but that's pretty much it. I go to SFA occasionally, but, you know, there's only like six attorneys in this town that do criminal defense. And in the greater East Texas region, there's less than 100 of us pretty much in the whole region. And we kind of just have the reputation now. My law partner used to be the district attorney of Nacogdoches and used to be the attorney general of the state of Texas. So we get a lot of just business from referrals and other people from outside the East Texas region refer to us, and the case may be two hours away, but we may still take it because there may not be an attorney in that. I mean, there's a, there's counties in this area where there are no living attorneys. There's nobody there. Um, so I don't have the hustle that I, I would in the bigger cities, but also, you know, at my age, I've tried some cases that some attorneys don't try their whole life uh, because they don't have that opportunity. So it's been a, you know, this is a great area for me. It's not for everybody. I mean, you got to live in East Texas as well. But, <laughs> you know, and my wife is from Tokyo, so she came from a different environment to Nacogdoches, um, you know, a town, the largest city in the world to a town of 30,000. But we travel a lot. We could never travel the way that we travel in Houston. You know, here I've got court. I know I have court maybe the first week of every month. Um, I know I don't have court in the summers because college kids aren't here. I don't have court like during deer season because every redneck here goes hunting. So we don't have, you know, the judges cancel court. So, I, you know, I can plan long vacations. I was gone to Japan for a month this year. I could never do that in Houston. Um, so so it's it's great in East Texas, but it's a very hard place to live. Yeah. Um, wanted you to talk a little bit about your recommendations for people listening who get into certain Mm-hmm. issues um <coughs> my community service i'm giving everybody a little bit of free legal advice courtesy of, of sean hightower yeah what do you recommend somebody to do if they're pulled over shut up on a suspicion of dui yeah shut up you know everything is recorded um every word you say is recorded when you get pulled over like dwi um the officer will probably smell alcohol and he'll ask you to get out and perform standardized field sobriety tests you don't have to do those. 90% of my clients do those tests because they felt like they had to. You can tell the officer, no, sir, I don't want to do these tests. I thought in Texas that was an automatic penalty. You will lose your driver's license only if you refuse a breath or a blood test. But in Texas, you, they can get a warrant to take your blood. Well, it may take them some amount of time, an hour, two hours to get a warrant. Well, alcohol dissipates in your system fairly quick. So, you know, Make them get a, a blood test. Make you know, invoke your rights. Make them get a warrant. Sometimes the judge is not on duty. You know, in Nacogdoches now in Austin or Houston, there's always going to be a judge around, so they're always going to be able to get a warrant fairly quick. Uh, so that kind of is a personal you know decision. Do I, if I do a breath test, my license will be suspended for 90 days. If I do a blood test, my license will be suspended for six months. No matter how long your license is suspended, though, for $46, you can go to the JP, get an occupational license. Well, the potential of them not having evidence of your blood alcohol level is worth $46. So I tell all my clients, always make them get a blood warrant. If they do, great, it's going to take them an hour and your blood's going to probably not be as high as when you were driving. Um, 
but don't do the field sobriety test. I mean, if you have a 0.2 BAC, but there's no field sobriety test, that's a lot harder for a jury. I mean, a jury has to determine not only that your blood alcohol is above a, a 0.08, but that you lost the normal use of your mental and physical faculties. So if you look great on the video and you don't sound drunk, but they have this huge number, that's easier to explain than you sounding drunk, looking drunk, and then having a huge number. So, you know, I have clients that won't do the field sobriety test, but then they'll cuss the cop up and down in the back seat of the car and just look like the biggest drunk asshole in the world. Don't do that either. You know, just tell the officer, take me to jail. If you think I'm drunk, take me to jail. And put your hands out, put the handcuffs on and go, and don't say anything. Um, in Texas, one of the few states, if the officer smells marijuana, they can literally pull uh, your car apart looking for the... Sp- Tiniest, I've had it happen to friends. Yeah, the tiniest speck of marijuana. Do they have any obligation to re? Let's say they they strip my car. Yeah, they royally fuck it up. Yeah, are they under any financial obligation to compensate me for destroying my car? No, whether they find weed or not. Whether they find weed or not. Um, now, if you can p- prove that the officer did it maliciously because they didn't like you or something, then yeah, maybe. But if you don't know that officer and he just randomly pulls you over and just decimates your car looking for weed. And they could do that just strictly off claiming they smell it. Claiming that they smell it, whether anybody else does or not. Um, Yeah, the government has immunity for that. So immunity means that the government, you're not allowed to sue the government as long as they were acting within the normal aspects of their duties and they weren't falling outside the policy custom. So what do you do in a situation like that? Let's say I'm driving with a little, I'm going to, I'm going camping and I'm going to smoke some pot while I'm out camping. Yeah. What do I do if I get pulled over? Cop says he smells weed, or maybe he doesn't. Or what do yeah. you? Yeah, clearly you keep your mouth shut. But what yeah. else do you do? Well, you shut up. Um, you know that I would say if you're transporting weed in your car, don't have it in your pocket. The law in Texas is that you have to. The government has to prove that you're possessing the marijuana. Possession is a kind of a flexible topic. It's whatever the jury believes it to be, but there still has to be some connection between you and that marijuana. So if it's in the glove box and you're in the driver's seat, you're pretty close to it. But if that weed's in the trunk of the car, there's a lot of explanations that as to why there may be weed in your car that you don't know about, depending on where it is in the trunk or whatever. So I would say keep it as far away from you as possible. And then if they do find it, I mean, they're going to search your car no matter what. Um, I always hear officers saying, if you'll just tell me where the weed is, you know, I'll help you out. I'll do the best I can. It's bullshit because you're just as arrested. You still have a class B marijuana case, whether you tell them where it is or you don't tell them where it is. An officer can't violate the law and just throw away the marijuana. I mean, he's got to do something with it. He's not going to keep it, probably. I've I watched once a cop pull it out of my friend's shirt pocket, Yeah. push it back into his pocket. Mm-hmm. Like it never happened. Had him get out of the car. He had a... He was driving underage with beer. Had him open the back. I've never seen a cop be this nice. Had him dump all the beer on the side of the road. Yeah. Get back in your car. Have a good day. Goodbye. Yeah. Don't do this again. He's the exception to the rule. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I I don't think he had probable cause for the stop. I think is why he was being so nice. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I always, you know, just shut up about it too. Mm -hmm. Don't let the officer pin you down to possessing it. Don't acknowledge even knowing what marijuana is if you get pulled over. (laughs) Um, but the, yeah, that's hard because they're going to do it anyway. So basically, in those situations, you got to you got to take the arrest, and you're yeah. taking the arrest because the punishment and the outcome later is going to be less yeah. than you burying, digging yourself a hole up yeah. front, trying to get out of it right there on the yeah. scene. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to litigate a case on the side of the road. The officer 
is not the person that decides that. So litigating on the side of the road, arguing with him, is not going to help you. Trying to say, oh, it's just a little bit of weed, I'm stupid, I'm sorry, doesn't help you. I mean, you've confessed to it. So, you know, don't talk at all. And especially don't even acknowledge that you knew that the weed was there. Um, but, you know, a lot of places like Austin, uh, Travis County, uh, right now they're not prosecuting weed cases. So I've talked to cops in, uh, not cop, they were uh, constables, mm-hmm. but they were serving warrants. Yeah. And he said he served a warrant to somebody he had at least an ounce. And he kind of quietly said, hey, look, I'm going to go in here and make sure this room's safe. When I come back, hopefully I don't have anything I have to arrest you for. Do I make myself kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge yeah. of get this out so I don't have to deal with it for you? Yeah. Yeah, because um, like in Harris County, the largest county in Texas, the DA has decided she's no longer going to prosecute Class A or Class B marijuana cases. That's four ounces of weed. That's a lot of weed. Um, so an officer, if he sees it, may not arrest you at all. You know, if you're driving around and they smell weed, they may get you for a DWI because you can be driving while intoxicated on marijuana. You could be high and driving. That's illegal, just the same as drinking too much right. beer. Um but they may not arrest you for the marijuana because they know in the end the DA is not going to do anything with it. Uh, Dallas County the same way. Tarrant County, you know, of course, Nacogdoches. We, you know, we're still prosecuting conservative weed. college town yeah. where they can make their money. How much of, in your experience, are cops taking these charges? Is it a revenue stream for the city? Like Tinaha, that was clearly people profiting off of it. Yeah, a city, a city like Nacogdoches, we've got what twenty five thousand people in this town. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea or a a hunch of how much of what they do is revenue building for the city? Yeah, not a lot. Um, you, when you get arrested, most of the fine that you pay doesn't stay in the city. It goes to the state government. And that's kind of the same everywhere. The only money that stays local are like in these civil forfeitures, like in Tenahaw, where they seize money or cars. That stays in your county. But you get arrested on a marijuana case, and the fine is up to $2,000. Here, probably the average is $500. Of that $500, maybe only a third of it, if not less, maybe 20%, actually stays in this county, and all the rest goes to the state government. So there's not so much... I don't feel like there's a lot of policing for profit as far as criminal arrest. Now, where you get civil the... Civil forfeitures. The civil forfeitures stuff. where you see a lot of abuses. And I've read articles that, especially in Texas and other border towns or border states, the enforcement is surprisingly disproportionate south police will camp out on southbound lanes Mm -hmm. because they can do something with quote-unquote drug money or suspected drug money yeah but if they they don't enforce the northbound lanes as much because what's the police department going to do with 10 kilos of cocaine yeah they would much rather have you noticed those patterns in your side of work absolutely so one of the biggest drug corridors in the world is i-59 i-59 goes from monterey mexico through Houston, up through Nacogdoches, and you can, when you keep going north, you can either go to Tennessee or to Chicago, staying on 59. And there's no major town, really, from the time you leave Houston, Nacogdoches is one of the biggest towns, and it's a town of 35,000, that you'll even go through. So there's a lot of enforcement in East Texas on on, um, southbound lanes, because that's where the money goes. Mm -hmm. Northbound, they've gone to Houston, and they bought their dope, and they're taking it back to Chicago. When they're coming southbound, they're coming from Chicago with their money, going back to Mexico to take the money back. So you do see, you know, literally here, 
on the southbound lane, you may have four police officers on I on 59 here south of town just waiting on a car that you know, either they have information or it's just a profile stop, really. Um, and it's actually legal if, if they see a car that's consistent with drug activity. Um, now, what is a car that's consistent with drug activity? Yeah, it's whatever the officer believes in his training and experience. <laughs> so it's all <laughs> bullshit as well. Mainly it's who's a minority going southbound, but that's what it seems to be. But normally it's like if they have out-of-state license plates uh, and they're speeding like one or two miles an hour over, uh, they don't use a turn signal correctly. They get a lot of people here for like license plates. They're, um, in Texas, we have a state law that the license plate cover cannot cover more than yeah. 50% of the name. So you see all these like Illinois license plates where the I is cut in half or a little bit more, so they pull you over for that. Not having a front license plate, they pull you over for that. My car doesn't have a front license plate. But I've never been pulled over because I have a Texas plate. Being a lawyer, in, have you been pulled over in Nacogdoches? No. Do you just, is it because you're obeying the law or do they know your vehicle so they leave you alone? A little bit of both? A little bit of both. I mean, I only live, you know, a mile from my office, so I actually don't travel a lot. And yeah. actually, where I'm located downtown, I walk most places. I can walk home, I can walk to the bar, walk to the, you know, wherever I want to go, the grocery store, I can walk there. Yeah. So I do a lot of that, but... Have yeah. you gotten pulled over outside of Nacogdoches? And has have you yeah. do you throw the lawyer no. card out, or do you just quietly? I I normally don't tell them I'm a uh, a lawyer. Um, it's a very lawyering is a very small world. Um, if I get a ticket, like for example, I had a ticket in College Station. I ended up knowing that city attorney, not knowing that they were the city attorney, the person that handles traffic tickets in that town. Until I called somebody that called somebody and figured out, actually, I know the guy. And that happens a lot. Um, I've been all over the state, and I've ended up having some degree of connection to most lawyers. And most people will because it's such a small area. I mean, in Texas, I think there's like 100,000 lawyers, but only like 60,000 of us are practicing. But they all went to one of the like six law schools. So you pretty much know somebody that knows somebody. So you don't want to be a royal asshole if you're an attorney because then it's hard for your friend to dismiss a ticket or do whatever they're going to do. Um, but sometimes the police officers will, will ask what I do and I'll tell them I do criminal defense or I'll make a joke. You know, I, I do um, police brutality cases or I'll just make some joke about <laughs> it or I do, um, you know, civil rights litigation or whatever it may be, some bullshit. But, um, you know, I, I have a, a sports car, so I, I like to speed a little bit. I've been pulled over for that, but I've never, it's never been a problem. I've actually never gotten a ticket out of all of it. Yeah. Uh, so that's mainly to do, I think, with my whiteness and my, you know, my lawyerness. In East Texas. And I'm in East Texas. It so. helps. Yeah. We, uh, I was talking to a friend about some of the, the racial disparities in East Texas. Yeah. Did you know DeMarcus? Yes. I'm not going to throw his last name out, yeah, yeah. but DeMarcus uh, was a classmate of Sean and, and mine. He's a, big i call him a big black teddy bear mm -hmm. very soft-spoken very very bright man he told me that uh he was pulled over during his four years in in nacogdoches a minimum of 10 times and he told me every time but one he had been taken out of his car and, and his vehicle searched yeah and <clears throat> to compare that i got pulled over one time at sfa running the stop sign on east college and um uh pearl no, not, not East, um, East College and Reggae, where mm -hmm. there's that four-way stop. Right. I got pulled over, and the officer noticed on my driver's license it said Parrish, Texas. 
And then when I ended up leaving, I, um, he let me go. No ticket. I legitimately blew through that, and uh, the stop sign. He told me his mama lived there and invited me to, like, meet his mom or something when I went back to Paris. Like, just let him know. So, I mean. I I was once, same thing. I was on campus. It was, like, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Middle of the week, daylight. Uh, I had a very loud sound system in my Jeep at the time. I was sitting at a stoplight. Cops sitting next to me with, and my windows are down. My music's going. I'm having a grand old time. No mm-hmm. warrants out. Everything. All my papers are, you know, yeah. up to date. But I wasn't sure. I thought maybe I had a tail light out. And this cop was just mean mugging me with his window down. So we're sitting at the light. I turn the music down. I was like, "Yes, officer. Is there mm-hmm. is there anything I can help you with?" He looks at me and in his East Texan drawl, "I sure am glad there aren't no kids around to hear that music coming out your car." Yeah. And I look <laughs> at him. Like, me too, officer. And I turn the music right back up. And I just sat there, light turns green, I make my left. He's in the right turn only lane. He books it behind me and proceeds to ride my ass. You know he's running my plates and seeing what he can do. Yeah. Rode my ass for the rest of the drive home. Thankfully, nothing came of it. But there, the racial disparities in East Texas, Do you, how much of that do you see yeah. playing out in, or being a motivating factor or, or a issue with your cases? Yeah, so... Um, it's kind of a weird, you know, I, I don't have a lot of clients that are of minorities, just kind of, I think, given our, how we do payments. Uh, but I have a case right now where an officer, you know, I mean, just brutally beat the shit out of a black girl at a college party here. And um, I think he's totally in the wrong. And that whole situation turned in kind of a huge ordeal here in Nacogdoches. We're having protests and they're picketing at the city council meetings at the police department. I feel like of, I read an article about yeah, that. Maybe it's kind of becoming a bit, a big deal. Um, I was able to get the, so every County has to do the FBI, uh, racial profiling data. And I didn't realize until this year, how terrible our racial profiling data is in Nacogdoches. Um, it, if you look at that data, the literal data that the police prepare says that they pull over black people 10 times more often than they do white people in this town. But white people in this town, 12% of the time have, uh, more often, 12% of the time, more often have contraband. So if, if your job is to stop contraband and illegal activity, you should be pulling over more white people because there's one more white people in Nacogdoches. And apparently they have 12% more often they have uh, contraband versus a black person. You also, in the statistics that they have, they're pulling over uh, Hispanics, at, and uh, it was like 40% higher than those that have a number of cars. So we're, you know, basically we're pulling over in the Hispanic household 40, four times more often than we should based on the number of reported vehicles owned by Hispanic households. So we have a huge number of racial profiling that goes on that's acknowledged. I mean, it's literally printed and presented to the city council with recommendations. The last paragraph recommends that they stop pulling over people of color uh, more often than, than they do. And they recommend that by basically saying, just pull over more white people. Well, that shouldn't be what they need to do. What they need to do is get into communities, get to know the community more, and stop pulling people over uh, for for technicalities. You know, maybe they the law is you have to use your turn channel 50 feet from a turn. And, you know, they did it at 30. They did it at 30, or they did it at 50, but the officer thought it was, 50, you know, yeah. 30. So, you know, 
they don't acknowledge it, but I mean, it's literally printed. You ask any police officer in this town if that is true, they'll tell you no. But then you print out the racial profiling data that their own department did and you show it to them, then they'll acknowledge, well, yeah, that's what, what the paper says. Well, I mean, that's the literal black and white arrest. Yeah. So, it, you know, it is a huge factor here. You, I'm going to circle back a little bit to payment. And mm-hmm. you said you don't do court appointed work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You cash at the door, money up front. My, and tell me if I'm just ignorant. My understanding is most law firms have a percentage of work that they should do pro bono. No. No? So there's a suggested amount. Um, nobody's required to do it. Okay. But um, I actually won the pro bono award for the state bar. I won it every year, which basically if you promise to do like 100 hours of community service, uh, of legal community service, um, like legal related, uh, they'll give you a certificate. You mm-hmm. don't get anything. I think you get a discount if you order something from the state bar. Um, I do a lot of, you know, pro bono stuff, but not in the criminal defense world because I don't want to undercut myself, of course. So I like we do this thing called Wills for Heroes here in Nacogdoches. So I will do a free will package. So it's a will, power of attorney, medical power of attorney, uh, just that general kind of package for first responders, police officers, nurses, teachers. Uh, if you have a public service job, I'll do it for free. So we actually have a day every every year. We kind of make a Wheels for Hero Day, go to the public library, and if you come, if you're there that day, I'll do it for free. Um, I also do the Ask the Lawyer Day, which is you come to the public library, or sometimes we'll do it like a donut shop here. If you have a legal question but you can't afford to go talk to a lawyer, because some lawyer, most lawyers actually will charge a fee just to come in and talk to them. Are you about to hit me with a no. with a bill for this no. podcast? Yeah, we don't charge for that, <laughs> uh, but. You know, so, you know, we'll answer free questions like, you know, there's a lot of abuses in the system. Landlord tenants, especially in this town, are just terrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, landlords just rape these people on on rent and money. and Not then they, fixing their not, shit. Yeah, I mean, they live in shitholes, and then they kick them out because they complained. Well, that's not legal, yeah. <clears throat> but these people can't normally afford to hire somebody. We have a thing called Lone Star Legal Aid, which is like a government-funded reduced or free legal assistance but by the time they get around to your case you're already homeless yeah so you know we try to do like once a month kind of an ask the lawyer where you can come in and ask any lawyer that volunteers questions so i do that pretty often but you certainly don't have to do you do you ever have cases that just pull in your heartstring or something about it where you're like oh yeah you can't afford it pay me something or pay me nothing and i'll take care of it for you oh yeah what is it that is it is it more of a a friend of Sean's gets that, or is it more just the weird random case where you're like you were wronged and mm-hmm. I feel for what makes you want to do that? Yeah, it, it depends. There are some that are friends, of course, that I'll help out, um, and there are some that um, they may not be friends, but you know they're like the district judge of some Podunk County that I may practice in front of his son. You know, I may. I may need something from that judge later. It's more on. of a political gesture. More of a political gesture. Not that the judge is going to like violate the law, but like, judge, I can't come this month. Can you set me a different time? Well, that's an easier question to ask if I've done him a favor or something. Right. Um, or a lot of, you know, I do a lot of work for police officers here. They get arrested or that their kids get arrested. Uh, but uh, the good number of ones that I'm going to reduce a fee or not charge anything are people that I do feel like were terribly wronged and that there's something that, we can do to fix it. If they were terribly wronged, uh, but they're a terrible person already, like, you know, they're, I ha- there's one example that comes to mind where the guy's like, 
he didn't commit that burglary, but he committed every murder, you know, that he had been in prison for like 40 years for a murder and then got out and murdered somebody else. And then at the same time, they charged him with burglary or something. And he was kind of the normal suspect. Yeah, he was probably wronged on that one case, but he still piece shit. So I'm not going to help him. But, you know, there's others that, you know, they needed help and they just couldn't afford it. And they really, they were willing to kind of, when they come in here, we try to, we always say that we try to leave them better than we found them. My wife's a counselor. So we do try to get our clients help. If they will do what we say, we, we normally make a plan going forward. You have a drug case, you were drop dead guilty, there's no doubt about it. We're going to find a rehab, we're going to find um, counseling that you're going to do, and it will either help you find a way to pay for it through grants or through the Burke Center, or you're going to have to pay for it through insurance or whatever it may be. Um, I've had some that were like really on board to kind of do what we told them to do that I, you know, I knew that they wouldn't be able to pay because they've lived this you know, highly addicted drug life for so long. And it's actually, you know, I will say like in the cosmic universe, somehow it all did balance out because I've, I've helped out one that, you know, I didn't charge him a thing and he's sober now and he refers me a ton of business. Yeah. So, if, you know, awesome. you know, if it weren't for him, there, some of my biggest cases come from him. Um, he was kind of a connection in Houston for me. Uh, so, you know, we just, it, it all worked out on that case. So, I, you know, I'm open to that, but. If you weren't, if the universe didn't kind of hand you the deck of cards it did, if you weren't here in Nacogdoches working for this law firm, yeah. one, would you still be a lawyer? Yeah. And two, if not in criminal law, what would you have practiced? Yeah, you know, I have this thought a lot. I have a twin, and uh, she's a pharmacist. And that is a cush job, let me tell you. She makes... Great money. She works retail pharmacy, so she works at a Walgreens or a CVS. I think it's a Walgreens. And um, she um, she does makes great money, and they give her like 10 employees. And if she doesn't like them, she tells somebody else. They do the hiring and the firing. She doesn't worry about light bills. She doesn't worry about anything. You know, here I have to hire and fire everybody. I've got offices in, in Houston and Beaumont that I have to supervise. I also have to pay the light bill, the mortgage, the insurance, the the chair you're sitting on, the pen that you write with, you know, it, it always amazes me. A lot me. more overhead. Yeah, there's a ton of overhead, and there's stuff you don't even think about. Like, you know, last year I probably spent $2,000 on stamps. You know, I'm 31 years old. I don't, I've never written a letter because I've always emailed, but now I'm paying over two grand a year in stamps. I'm paying last year, I'm a big numbers guy, so like I can tell you last year we spent like $300 on Post-Its. Who the hell is using all these post-its? I don't use post-its, but apparently I'm spending a shit ton of money on post-its. So I've, I've, there are times that I do think, man, I should have done something else that would maybe financially be equivalent to, and it would be a lot less stress. In the legal profession, you know, if I wasn't a criminal lawyer, I probably would have been a personal injury lawyer because I think, I mean, those cases very rarely go to trial anymore because the way insurance works, there's a policy limit. It's a hundred grand yeah. or million dollars, something like that. You don't even talk to a lawyer. You just talk to the insurance companies. Yeah. A friend of mine does that work. Yeah. You talk to the guy who's like is the insurance rep and you know, I mean, you killed somebody, your policy limit's a million dollars. Give me a million dollars because you killed somebody. Okay. We'll give you 750. Well, the lawyer gets 40% of that. That's not a bad day's work. Yeah. So, you know, I've thought about that, but at the end of the day, I mean, there are you know, I don't work in that world, so I'm sure there's problems. But here, you know, I have days that, you know, you you go out and you win a case and you change someone's life. That's a huge thing. Like, especially me, I deal with a lot of college kids. 
to be able to shape those college kids' lives. I mean, literally, if they were convicted, that could completely derail their entire life. They're 19 and they got, you know, a felony. I have a girl that, you know, she went and beat up another girl and they charged her like two felony cases. We're going to get that all taken care of. Where it'll never be on a record again. Um, for basically what amounted to just college kids being college kids. And it was just way over-exaggerated in the legal system. So that's a good feeling. You know, financially, it may not always pay, you know, what a life-changing experience should pay. But, I mean, it's still good to me that, you know, I've shaped those kids' lives. But there are days that, yeah, I have a friend that he's a PI lawyer and, you know, he maybe makes $5 million in a year and he only works eh, 20 hours a week. That's not a bad bad day, you know, bad year. No. So, you know, it's kind of hit or miss. There are are advantages, disadvantages. Criminal law is a little difficult because you're dealing with a lot of personality. I mean, there's... Most people are very remorseful, but there are some that just... Sociopaths. Sociopaths, or that they just don't understand. No matter, you could yell at them until you're black and blue in the face that what they did is illegal and wrong. They may acknowledge it, but they don't want to do anything to help themselves, or, you know, they don't even care. So that's real difficult. Yeah. Do you have any other advice for people listening who get in in uh, trouble with the law? Just shut up. Don't say anything. Ask for a lawyer. I would say, you know, what happens here, and it happens a lot in East Texas, a lot of indigent people, poor people show up to the courthouse, and the judge gives you the option. You can either get a court-appointed attorney, or you can work it out with the district attorney today. It's convenient to work it out that day, but you may royally get screwed because you got a conviction, or they suspended your driver's license, and that's going to lead to you getting arrested again. Just get a court-appointed lawyer. It literally costs you nothing, and it could change the entire rest of your life. You know, it it does mean a lot. The smallest case, if you're entitled to a court-appointed attorney, get one. Having the worst attorney is still better than just walking in by yourself and just laying down and pleading guilty to something that you may be able to mitigate or you may be able to just work out at a better deal just by having an attorney. So, you know, here on a Tuesday, you can come in and 90% of people that show up on these arraignment dockets plead guilty, not knowing the long-term implications of that. Yeah. And that's just, it's terrible because, you you know, I'm sitting there knowing that, you know, you're going to end up in this courtroom next week because you're not never going to be able to do this or this. Now, are, when you're sitting in those courthouses, are you able to lean over and just go, hey, like, I know you're yeah. not, you can't represent, but can you lean over and, and whisper to him, get the court appointed? Do you ever do that? Can you do that? I've taken people out in the hall before and told them, you know, wait a minute, before you do this, like I heard one the other day in Henderson in Russ County. This guy had like a point oh eight DWI. It was his second, but it was only a point oh eight, uh, and it was by a breath test. Well, the natural breath test, the machine itself says that there's a twenty percent variance in the mach- in the machine, and when you blow, there's actually two samples. So when the prosecutor told him he had a point oh eight, he wasn't entitled to even look at the discovery. He didn't know what it actually was. Well, I was able to look over and see that he actually blew a point oh seven and a point oh eight, so he blew twice. And I mean, this guy was just about to plead guilty. That's He was going to do two years of probation. His license would be suspended for two years. He was going to have an interlock device where he had to blow in. That's going to cost 90 bucks a month. And he told him he couldn't do that. He couldn't afford it. So the next option was he was going to go to jail for like 45 days. Well, you know, he's going to lose his job, but he only worked at like fast food restaurants, so he didn't care. But I was telling him, just get a court appointment attorney. You have a point of seven. They, I mean, you may be able to get it dismissed. You may be able to go to a jury trial. Or you may get it reduced, but you literally can't get any more. I mean, the 
what the offer is is about the max that they could offer you anyway. Did so, he take your advice? He did. Yeah, he went in and asked for a court-appointed attorney. Um, but it, it just, you know, prosecutors, the younger ones, I think, they get into this habit of numbers. It's about numbers and not people. They got to understand that. I mean, these are people on the other side of the of the table from them. And you, how do you want to treat them? Do you want, you know, if it was your child, do you want them to just tell you, all right, the offer is 45 days to go sit your ass in, in county jail? Or do you want to actually know that it was a .07 and you may have some kind of defense and I'm not going to punish you for that? Uh, or if I am going to punish you, it's not going to be at the same severity as the guy that had a point oh, you know, a point four, who's almost legally dead driving. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know, I think if you've done it a while, you, you tend to calm down and you're not looking to throw everybody in prison. But like Houston, Austin, some of the bigger cities, you you, you find all these young prosecutors are just looking to get numbers because they feel like that gets them promoted and gets them better position, more money because you have a 99 percent conviction rate. That's nothing to be proud of. I mean. If you, there's no way 99% of them were guilty. Or if they were, there's no way 99% of them deserved the punishment that you recommended. I mean, some of them had mitigating circumstance yeah. or, or they were overcharged. There's a lot of people that are overcharged. Do DAs get annoyed with you? Yes. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, funny story. I'm actually representing a DA right now in a DWI. Um, and he got very annoyed with I filed some paperwork asking for a lot of information that was going to take a lot of time and effort. The reason I filed it was to make him take a lot of time and effort on the case, and he didn't want to, because I knew it was going to be easier for him just to dismiss it than it was for him to give me everything that I was asking for. So he got really pissed off. He called and cussed me up and down, one side and down the other, just, you know, fuck you, we're going to trial, and this lady's going to go to prison forever and a day. Well, then he got arrested, and the first thing he said, you know that shit that you wanted me to do where it was going to make the government, like, get all the records? Can you do that for me? So, I mean, he wanted me to... You know, he wanted me to invoke his rights the same way that I invoked it for somebody yeah. else. So, Did you, you have know. to politely remind, her, remind him? Oh, I do every time I see him. Yeah, he <laughs> knows. And, you know, he's definitely calmed down. But, I mean, every cop I've represented, every attorney I've represented, like I said, I've represented a DA and a judge, they all invoke their rights as fervently as anybody in the world could. So everybody should. I've never had a cop do field sobriety tests. I've never had a cop agree to do a breath test or a blood test. Really? I mean, I've and I've represented maybe a dozen police officers on just DWIs, and and I have never honestly had a single one of them say, "Yeah, I'll do your breath test, your blood test." How much of the? I always kind of assume there's the good old boy network, especially in a town like Nacogdoches, yeah. where if I get pulled over for a DWI, my buddy's going to throw me in the back of his car or whatever and make sure I get home. How exactly do you get a DWI as a cop in East Texas? Well, either you don't get along with everybody, that's part of it, uh, but also you get a lot of out of towners here. Uh, they may be a big city Houston cop and they come get their DWI up here. You have a lot of like fraternity and sorority um, reunions in Nacogdoches. Well, they may be a cop down in Houston, Austin, but they're coming to SFA for gotcha. these reunions. They get just plastered drunk. And here there's there's not the, I mean, there's a little bit of camaraderie here. And I'm, I'm sure there are cases in Nacogdoches I don't know about where a cop's helping out another cop. But I have represented cops that are like from Houston or Austin. I had an attorney from Houston. Uh, that was a prosecutor, uh, that they, I mean, they hooked up as quick as they could. So it it does happen. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've kind of worked my way through all my questions with you. I'm sure yeah. I have more, but this has been awesome. Uh, if anybody's listening in the Houston area or mm-hmm. Nacogdoches, 
or even in the Austin area, and they need a criminal defense attorney, how do they? How would they find you? Well, we have our website, thegoodlawyer.com. So just go to thegoodlawyer.com. All of our information is there. We're very East Texan, so I even have my home number there. It's my cell phone. You can call or text me. Um, just uh, number is 936-560-3300. Or just go to thegoodlawyer.com. Get all of my information there. Awesome. Um, I wanted to ask one personal question. Mm-hmm. Uh, James and Hightower, when James finally steps aside, yeah. is it going to stay James and Hightower or is it eventually just going to become Hightower? It'll probably stay James and Hightower. Tim has a very long reputation uh, in Texas. He was, like I said, the attorney general. He was the district attorney. He uh, was the press secretary for um, uh, Barry Goldwater out of Arizona. I mean, oh, wow. He's kind of done it all, and um, so I like to kind of leech off that reputation as much as I can. So I'll probably keep it forever and ever. Awesome. Well, Sean, I appreciate you taking time to sit down. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, I hope you have found it enjoyable. Thank you, Chris.